Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is the lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked round at them in anger, in deeply distressed in their stubborn hearts. Said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Thank you very much, Amy. Morning, everyone. It's, um, it's great to be here with you all today and it's Great to be able to be looking at this passage together as we come to our conclusion of our series in Mark, at least for the the time being. Um, Before we jump into it, let me just pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for Mark's gospel. We thank you that you have chosen to show yourself to us and we thank you for all the things we've seen of Jesus that Mark has shown us. And we pray that this morning once again... As we look at Jesus, you would fill our hearts with joy at his goodness and his mercy. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine today. For our purposes, we'll, we'll just call him Ben. It's by no means our vicar Ben. I'm just happy coincidence. Now, my friend Ben, he's, he's a stand-up guy. He's got a lovely wife. He's got three delightful children. He's well thought of by friends and family and in the wider community as well. He does support terrible sports teams, no matter what the sport. And he's certainly seen better days as he started to lose some of the hair on top. But still, despite that, he's very well respected. Ben is is also a man of faith. He grew up in a religious home. He was taught about God from a young age. And as he's grown into adulthood... He's pursued getting to know God more and more. In his younger days, he got stuck into church, eager to learn more. He was involved in the Christian Union at university. And even when that wasn't enough, he went to Bible college to study more of the Bible and theology and continue to learn more about God. He spends time regularly in prayer, publicly and privately. He continues his studies, diligently reading his Bible each day. And he loves to share his knowledge of God with others, regularly speaking to crowds and sharing the good news about God. There's really not much to pick him up on. His life seems to be lived well, and his desire to know God is infectious. Well, that's my friend Ben. And the reason I wanted to introduce you to him all this morning is because if me and my friend Ben lived at the time of Jesus, I'm pretty sure Ben would be a Pharisee. See, our understanding of Pharisees today is very different to what it would have been back then. Today, even just culturally, being a Pharisee, being Pharisaical, is never used positively. It's always a negative. And then as Christians, on top of that, we're familiar with their failings, with the way they mess up in the Bible. We see them instantly as the bad guys. 
You hear the word Pharisee, you think bad guy. But that wasn't the way they were seen in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, they were the religious leaders. They were the godly, upright men in society. They were the ones well-versed in the scriptures who sought to follow God's law, to be obedient to it. They were the ones people looked up to, the ones people sought for advice, for wisdom and counsel. They were like my friend Ben. And in many ways, like ourselves too. See, we too seek to know God, don't we? We seek to understand his word and get to know him. We seek to be obedient to his commands. We talk to him, we pray. We would fit very nicely in with the Pharisees of the day. And the reason I'm stressing the point is because this is key to understanding the events and challenge we see in our passage. If we just see Pharisees as bad guys instantly, it's easy to miss what's going on. It's easy to miss the issue that Jesus highlights in the question he asks. See, in verse 4, Jesus asked, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? It's a question that gets right to the heart of the problem the Pharisees have. And we'll see more of that as, as we go through. Ultimately, it's a question the Pharisees can't answer. But thankfully, we see that Jesus does give us a clear answer and shows us that he is the one who came to do good and bring life. You see, our passage today is a showdown. It's a bit like those scenes in your Wild West films where the, the half doors get pushed open of the bath and someone strolls in, spurs clanging, gum belt jingling, and they call someone outside to have a shootout. You see, the opposition to Jesus has been growing throughout chapter 2 of Mark as questions start flying his way. Firstly, in 2 verse 7, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Then in verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Then verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And then verse 24, the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Question upon question, accusations flying at Jesus. Increasingly, more and more people seem to be unhappy with what Jesus is teaching and what him and his disciples are doing. See, this would be all the scenes in the film prior to the bar scene. Jesus is the new man in town. He's come in and he's started to upset and annoy people. He's acting outside of their expectations. He's not following the ways people who know God follow. He has no regard for their rules. He's teaching with authority, but not what they would teach. He's gaining popularity. This man is trouble. And then we get to chapter 3. And the scene is set. Mark tells us that Jesus is in the synagogue, and it's a Sabbath. This is a special place and a special day. Tension is high. The tumbleweed is blowing past the entrance of the synagogue. And there inside is a man with a shriveled hand. A man who suffered with this affliction his whole life, who wouldn't have been able to work. He'd be isolated, he'd be poor, he'd be alone. No one would want to associate with him. And no one is sure what will happen. No one is sure what Jesus is going to do next. But one thing is for sure, 
Everyone is watching. The Pharisees are hoping Jesus will do something. They're hoping he will slip up and break their Sabbath rules. So Mark tells us they're watching intently to see Jesus is going to heal this man and so bring their condemnation on himself. Well, Jesus is fully aware of what's going on and he's certainly not afraid. He says to the man, stand up in front of everyone. This isn't just stand up, it's stand up in front of everyone. Jesus is bringing the man front and centre and he flips things on their head. As here in our showdown, it's Jesus who asks the question of the Pharisees and not the other way around. See, in our film, we're now outside on the road in the dirt. The two parties about to face off as the crowds look on. With everyone in the synagogue looking, with the man stood up in front of everyone, Jesus asks his question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? It's a question on the Pharisees' terms, on the law. The platform they were familiar with and his question hits home hard. See, the law of the Sabbath meant that no work could be done on that day. And the Pharisees seeking to be obedient and faithful, again, not the bad guys we instantly see them as, they'd built further rules on top of that, further barriers, if you like, to try and ensure that the Sabbath would be kept holy. However, they knew the law was good and they knew it was God given and given to show them how to live a good and godly life. But here, Jesus' question is highlighting that their additional laws have meant that it was impossible for good to be done. According to them, it wasn't just work that couldn't be done, but no healing was allowed either on the Sabbath. And so by consequence, they were actually enforcing the evil and leaving this man in his suffering. It's a real dilemma for them. Jesus' question gets to the heart of their problem. What was more important to them? Was it sticking to their rules and doing what they thought made them faithful and godly? Or is doing good and bringing life, no matter what their rules said, the better thing to do? To put it another way, what was more important to them? Was it the man or their rules? What was it that was driving and motivating their actions? Their answer? Silence. They can't possibly begin to answer Jesus' question. If they say to do good, to bring life, then their rules, their way of life, the status they bring, their security, their hope, they all come crashing down. If they say to do evil and to kill, then what does that show about what they think of God's laws and God himself? What would it mean for them going forward? No one would listen to them anymore. No one would follow them. Again, everything they have would fall apart. They're stuck. They have no answer. So they remain silent. See, when it comes down to it, they don't want to give up what's important to them. They like the status that being a Pharisee brings. They like the importance that comes with it. They like people looking up to them. They like the security, the power, and the hope that they have in being able to keep their own rules. And they'd rather cling to these things than admit that they're wrong. They'd rather grasp onto them for dear life rather than a man be healed and restored. To the Pharisees, the man in the passage, is, he's just a prop. They have no care for him. They just use him to try and trap Jesus. They care much more for their way of life than this afflicted man. 
There's no compassion from them, no empathy. There is no love. Jesus has highlighted the heart of their problem, and it's a problem of their heart. See, what is it that truly drives them? Is it a love of God and seeking to live for him? That's what their lives portray. That's what they want people to think. But no, it's not. Instead, it's looking good. It's being important. It's trusting in themselves. And Jesus' question highlights the same thing for us today. The problem of the Pharisee's heart is a problem for all human hearts. When we look at our lives... When we look at the things that drive and motivate us, what are the things that are most important to us? What are the things we would cling to whilst ignoring the need of others? Where is our hope? Maybe the driver for us is status. It is being popular. Enjoying being the one people look up to. The ones sought out for their wisdom and counsel. The ones holding that power and position whether that's at work, in social circles, or in church, somewhere you hold influence, somewhere that makes you feel important. Well, what happens when that position is threatened? What happens if, say, you're in a situation where your friends are gossiping about another friend? You know it's not right, but do you join in? Rather than risking standing up for your friend, you'd rather not lose face. You'd rather the focus of the gossip stay on your friend rather than it fall onto yourself. Or maybe it's having the unpopular opinion at work because you're a Christian. Whether that's sex before marriage, abortion, whatever it is, whenever that topic comes up, you choose to stay silent. You'd rather keep your status, the respect of your colleagues and peers, than stick up for God's truths. Or what about self-righteousness? That one sounds a bit fancier, doesn't it? But essentially, I just mean being good, relying on ourselves to ensure we're on the right track. And we probably don't like to admit this one so much. It sounds like it's got a bit more of a spiritual aspect to it. We are all sinners and we're saved by grace alone. And yet often our actions are driven by the idea that we can save ourselves. Let me ask you, how many times have you gone through a day and... You've not read your Bible and you've not prayed. And your thought pops into your head. I am so bad. What will God think of me? Well, how many times have you fallen into the same sin over and over and have that same thought? I'm too bad. There is no way back for me. God cannot possibly want me. Or what about the other way around? How many times have you read your Bible for days on end? You've prayed, attended church, helped serve teas, coffees, and the thought comes in. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty good at this Christian malarkey. God is lucky to have me on his team. We get a sense that God owes us one. All these things, they don't lead to good and they don't lead to life. And this is why Jesus asked the question in his passage... Jesus wants the Pharisees to see what their problem is. He wants them to turn from their self-serving religion, from their self-righteousness, and turn back to God and do good and have life. The Pharisees are there in our showdown. They're faced with a choice. And unfortunately, they choose the wrong one. 
They choose to keep hold of what they have. They choose to ignore those in need and instead set themselves firmly against the one who did come to do good and bring life. And instead they seek to put him to death. So the Pharisees, they have nothing more to say in our showdown. They remain silent. What about Jesus? Let's look at his actions in the showdown. See, the Pharisees remained silent, and Mark tells us that Jesus was angry and distressed. He was grieved at their lack of response, at their hardness of heart. Now, we need to remember that Jesus' anger is not like our anger. This wasn't petulant anger at being ignored. This isn't me asking my kids to get ready and brush their teeth and get their shoes on over and over and over and over again. That gets me pretty angry, but mainly because I want them ready and they're not doing what I want, so I get cross. But that's not what's happening here with Jesus. Here the anger comes from a place of love, a place of longing for the Pharisees to turn and repent. Mark says it's anger mixed with grief. See, we've seen into some of the Pharisees' heart what drives them. Here we see into Jesus' heart. We see his drivers and motivations. What is it that drives Jesus? It's a love. A love for lost people. A love for me. A love for each one of you here. It's a love not just for the man with the shriveled hand, but for the Pharisees too. See, Jesus grieves for them. And he heals the man. He restores him and brings him back to Jesus. See, here is the one who is willing to do good. And bring life. See, Mark has been showing us throughout his gospel. Throughout these confrontations, he includes who Jesus is. And Mark's included each one to show us a different aspect of Jesus. In 2 verse 7, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Correct, no one can. Mark's telling us Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who can forgive sins. In 2 verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Jesus replies, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus has come for this very reason, to call sinners to himself. He's come for those in need, those who are lost, to restore them and bring them back. In verse 18, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Again, Jesus replies, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. See, Jesus picks up on some Old Testament imagery here of him being the bridegroom, and he offers his bride, the church, personal, intimate relationship with himself. See, Jesus, the Son of God, creator of heavens and earth, offers us deep, unbreakable, covenantal relationship with himself. And in verse 24, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus again replies, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given by God, it's his same as all things. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath because he is Lord of all. And then here in our passage we see Jesus is the one who has come to do good and to bring life, to fulfill the law. 
See, Jesus is the only one who can ever claim to be self-righteous. He's the only one who ever lived perfectly by the law, and yet he chose to provide a different way for people to be saved, a different way for people to be made right with God. And we see the path for that way start to take shape at the end of our passage today. See, the showdown has taken place. The Pharisees have lost, but it's not fatal. They live to fight another day, and so starts the scene which sets up the sequel. They go away and they team up with the Herodians, two groups of people who would not have had much in common, but they found common ground in their dislike of Jesus. They united together and sought ways to get rid of him, to get rid of the God of life. But here's the thing. It was a path that Jesus came to travel. This wasn't a surprise for Jesus. It was this path which Jesus continued to walk, driven and motivated by that love he has for us. He knew full well where it headed He knew where it ended. He knew the cross and crucifixion were waiting for him. And it's here that he knew he would perform the ultimate act of good and bringing life. Dying in place of sinners, he would bring them life. The perfect law-fulfilling one dying in the place of sinful people. Dying to cleanse us from our sinful hearts and desires. To cleanse us from our love of status from our love of self-righteousness, dying so we can be forgiven, so we can be restored to him. See, the cross is where we see the greatest act of good there has ever been or ever will be. It's this act which means no matter how many times our motives lead us to do the wrong thing, no matter how many times our motives are just wrong themselves, we are forgiven by coming to Jesus. Because he is the one who has done the ultimate good. And because of him we are restored. And we can enjoy life with him in his everlasting kingdom. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he gave up everything for us. That we can come to you because of him and not because of anything we have done or could do. We thank you that our hope is secure as it rests solely on him and not at all on ourselves. We pray your spirit would keep our eyes and hearts focused on Jesus and all these things Mark has shown us of him. That he would keep our hearts warmed to Christ and our love for him would grow each day. In his name we pray. Amen.